Welcome to the Bare Naked ABCs, where we review every Bare Naked Ladies song alphabetically from 7 to Y. And this week we are not reviewing any song in particular. We are joined by a man who is influential to the Bare Naked Ladies. He plays piano, keyboard, guitar, and other instruments, including the harmonica. He continues to make music, including songs with a very sarcastic bite doesn't sound anything like Stephen Page at all. <laughs> he has been professionally releasing albums for over 40 years. He has 15 albums, his newest album being 12 Songs, which came out in 2017. And if he didn't have a close enough 7 Degrees with Kevin Bacon connection to BNL already, he has another one. His sister is a noted television writer who was the executive producer on the show Blossom, who starred Maya Bialik, who was a major character on Big Bang Theory, which had the theme written by Bare Naked Ladies. I count that as four degrees. An even closer degree, though, is Stephen Page sang the backup vocals for Dan Friedman's album Song for Grownups in 1998. This man has composed, performed, and produced the soundtrack to a cult horror film, I Bought a Vampire Motorcycle, in which he performs the track She Runs on Blood, Not Gasoline. My baby wears leather and chrome She calls the highway her home She's such a lethal machine She runs on blood instead of gasoline He is currently opening for Stephen Page across the U.S. on the second half of Stephen's tour. It is my pleasure to introduce Dean Friedman. Dean, thank you for joining us tonight. Pleased to uh, be here. Thanks for having me. For those of our audience who are not familiar, as familiar as Stephen Page is to your music, can you classify your music? Because I, I was listening this week, and you are so eclectic that I can't put you into any category. Well, you know what? I'm pleased to hear that. I take that as a compliment, although it's always befuddled the record companies that I've worked with, and you know they're never sure... Uh, you know, what bin to put me in. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I grew up listening to all kinds of music. Uh, I, I always thought that, you know, just uh, favoring one idiom or style or genre was kind of a prejudicial, biased kind of way of looking at things. And I think, was it Duke Ellington or Satchmo said there's only uh, uh, two kinds of music. There's good music and bad music. <laughs> so... You know, I grew up, uh, my mom uh, was a singer. There was always some Broadway show tune on the piano and classical music. And then I got a transistor radio and started listening to all the top 40 and, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, Supremes, Dylan. And then I, I definitely had an affinity for singer-songwriters, folks like Joni Mitchell and Randy Newman, yeah. James Taylor. And so that's something I've always aspired to do in my songwriting, which is to sort of Something they've always, uh, I think, ha had in common, a characteristic of their writing, was that they painted very vivid pictures uh, with their words and music, uh, setting a scene on almost of a cinematic quality. So that's something I, I, I've always aspired to do starting out and still to this day, uh, but in every genre. So I like that you describe my work as eclectic because kind of that's how I approach it. Oh, definitely. And, and I would definitely say you are 
very accomplished with what you were trying to set out and do with which is to paint these pictures because your songs definitely do that and they're they're gorgeous and they're kind of all different types and coming in from different directions well uh i guess i i look at what i do sometimes as being a someone who writes short stories that are set Mm. to music um and so you know i think about character and i think about you know i even think about things like the lighting of a scene because it sets a tone uh, it sets a mood, and you know, as I'm doing something that might be narrative or even historical or, you know, newsy, contemporary, I still want the listener to have a sense of time and place. Uh, so I, I tend to be kind of very granular in my writing, uh, you know, in terms of a lot of detail, uh, and I, yeah, I know that's a, a particular style, but for me, it helps in my mind. I, I imagine that the listener. Uh, is able to use those details uh, to relate to their own experiences and then fill in the gaps uh, with their own lives. And uh, in a way, I, I like to think that that they uh, are become collaborators in the process. That, nice uh, way of putting that. I like that. <laughs> well, you know, if I do my job right, that's what I, I hope to achieve. So that, you know, we're both a part of that world that's being depicted in the song. So what is your process on writing these songs? Like, how do you, like, do you have a way that you tend to come about it and start? Or do you start with the music or the lyrics or, or does it kind of vary up? You know, uh, every song is different and that's what keeps it kind of interesting for me. Uh, sometimes it starts with a, just an idea or, or, you know, a topic or a theme, sometimes with a title, sometimes uh, a musical phrase, a melody, or a, a, a rhythmic pattern, or a guitar lick. It could be any one of those elements. But once I find sort of a kernel of an idea that I like, you know, to me it's it's like approaching a crossword puzzle, which is that you have one corner of it and you want to make all the rest of the grid match and work and fit neatly together in a cohesive whole. Uh, and and so the first part of songwriting that's you know where inspiration comes, and and that's kind of inexplicable. I don't pretend to know about that. Uh, but the second part of songwriting, once the inspiration strikes, is what you do with that inspiration. What do you do with those ideas? How you craft them? Uh, and for me, that's a whole series of decisions, choices that you make. You know, am I going to you know write this on guitar or keyboard uh, or ukulele? Is this going to be in a, a minor key or a major key? Is this going to be up-tempo or a ballad? Uh, what kind of genre is it going to be in? Uh, and all those decisions determine what you wind up with. And, and sometimes the song will write itself. Sometimes, you know, you wake up, you pick up an instrument, you sit down, and an hour later you got a song. And, and that's great when that happens. And you just thank your muse and, and try to make sure you write it down and record it quickly so you don't forget it. But more often than not, at least these days, where I have less free time to just sit around, I find that I have to write a song on purpose, that I have to make conscious decisions about uh, you know, what the song is going to be about, you know, what shape it takes. The thing is, once you know what your song is about, that, that sort of helps you strategize how to accomplish that goal. Uh, and for me, that makes the, the job a little bit easier. Thank you. And by the way, Jeff, at any point in time, for, I, I didn't introduce earlier, but we have Jeff Whitmire joining us tonight uh, to hey, ask everyone. questions as well. Yeah, uh, Jeff, Jeff, don't just sit there. 
I was just letting you go. I've actually, Dean, this is I got to be honest with you. As uh, a lyricist, for you know, for for most of my life, who's who hasn't you know anywhere near as accomplished as you are, um, this is actually an honor for me to be able to talk. Well, it's nice of you to say, and uh, uh, yeah, you, no, you, I, you are one of my favorite lyricists. Oh, that's well, that's very cool. Um, so here, and uh, uh, so you know, like it's. Uh, See, I feel like everyone's got a good song in them. You know, for me, songs are about self-expression, about describing, you know, the world as you see it. Uh, my favorite songs are, are songs that are so idiosyncratic that that only that person could have written them. I like the I, I don't like homogenized, you know, generic pop songs. I, I do like kind of idiosyncratic personal songs. Uh, to, to me, those mean the most. So um, and uh, so yeah, no good, Jeff. Go, going off that, then um, I I would like to ask you what about what I think is the most one of the most Dan Friedman songs you've written, and uh, that would be uh, that would be Lucky Stars. I know this is hard to do, but there's no one for me but you, and you can thank your lucky stars that we're not as smart as we'd like to think we are. Which I I. I just absolutely love that song. I know we're going way back here, but um, uh, what was the process with that? Because uh, just that whole no, uh, you know, yes, about the process about the song. Uh, I, I wrote that song uh, one summer. I, I was actually driving a taxi cab in New York and listening to a lot of country music on the radio, and this was about I guess seventy seven, seventy eight, and at that time. You know, there were, were not a lot of duets in pop. Right. But there was a long tradition of duets in country music. There always has been. And in particular, the subject matter in country music is all about, you know, fights and, and jealousy and, and marital strife and, you know, all, all that juicy content. And so in some ways, when I sat down to write Lucky Stars, I, I imagined it as sort of my pop version of a, a heart twanging country song, a country duet, but you know, interpreted in, in sort of a pop idiom, and, and in some ways, it's a, kind of a mini musical. So, uh, yeah, I just sort of envisioned this sort of very familiar squabble and set it to music. It's very, it's very organic, and I, I mean, I have to say, it's one of my favorite opening lines in in music. Um, uh, You know, you're just captivated, and the fact that you have this this just uh, brilliant back and forth, um, uh, you know, leading to that fantastic line, and you, and you and you can thank your lucky stars that we're not as smart as we'd like to think we are. It's just the gorgeous flow, and and like you said, it's you know you're you're taken along on this ride. I mean, you can almost envision the scene because it's a conversation that maybe we've had in some form or another, and uh, it's just now. I mean, I've heard a lot of um, songs that kind of try and get that. Uh, um, you know, they might be giants kind of have one like, that, that jumps in my head, but that gets that uh, feel of a back and forth conversation. And just what you develop there is 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 absolutely fantastic. Well, thank yeah. you. I guess another characteristic of my songwriting style, which I'm aware of, is that I tend to reach for lyrics that are conversational. Right. Uh, because I think it's that conversational sort of casual, relaxed flow uh, in a lyric 
that grabs people in a way uh, that they recognize the familiarity of, of, of the expression and of the intent and uh, the meaning of, of that line. Uh, so a line like, you know, what are you crazy? How the hell can you say what you said? I mean, everybody <laughs> said that at some right. point or another. And, and it does encapsulate, you know, at the very beginning of the song, this whole scenario, because there's so much backstory to everyone's experience of that sentiment. That uh, you know, uh, so I've already done three verses with that one line, uh, and, and so it sets up the rest of the song really nicely. Even this, even the chorus, you know, uh, you, know you can thank Lucky Stars. You're not as smart, or we're not as smart as, as you'd like to think we are. Um, you know, it, it's it's a little puzzling at first. It was puzzling to me at first, but at the same time that it's puzzling to people. I think everybody sort of gets the sort of unspoken meaning of it, you know, but, which is basically, you know, don't overthink it. Sometimes your heart is smarter than your head. Right. And that, that song is a perfect example, again, of the discussion and the – so it's a perfect example, again, you telling this short story because short stories are, are infamous in coming in the middle of a discussion or in the middle of a situation – and and then filling in the backstory a little bit backwards and then going forward with it and and you do a great job with that in that song. Well, I try. <laughs> Thank you. It's like you had a camera in all of our bedrooms as we're going to bed. <laughs> I mean, that's this funny man, you this say man that. Has heard my conversations with my wife. How's that happen? <laughs> well, you know the power of the internet. No, but it's funny you say that because when I first wrote. Uh, uh, my uh, song Ariel. She was a Jewish girl. I fell in love with her. She wrote a number on the back of my hand. I called her up. I was all out of breath. I said, Come hear me play in my rock and roll band. Which uh, is the first single off my first album. Mm-hmm. Uh, I-, I was a little self conscious. Uh, at first about the storyline because nothing really happens. You know, this guy meets the girl, they go on a date, they wind up, you know, making out while they're watching TV. That's, that's the whole song. It's not much of a plot. Uh, but when I played the song for a couple of teenage girls who lived on my block, you know, where I grew up in Paramus, New Jersey, uh, they listened to the track and then they both turned to me and accused me of reading their diaries. (laughs) And so when I got that reaction, it was encouraging because what it said to me was that it, it, it was a song that even as mundane as the as details were, there was enough of it that they related very powerfully to. And, uh, you know, I think that's what uh, people reacted to in the song. Well, I think well, it spoke what's... to them and it, and it and reached in and, and hit on important things for them because – you know, girls don't put things in diaries that aren't important to them at the time. So even though it seemed mundane for you, like to them, th- these were important things for these girls. Well, sometimes what you think are trivial details say everything. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's like you said, too. I mean, it's what separates um, like you. I mean, I kind of get uh, disillusioned by the genericness of a lot of music that still gets popular. I mean, it's like anyone can write a song, a love song. Uh, I mean, that's 95% of, of music. Only one song mentions that you specifically played with the vertical hold on the TV. You know, <laughs> and it, it's what to me is what separates like the music right and, and just gets that, um, 
that feel of here's how specific it is here how here's how much that memory meant to me even though like you said it was you know it wasn't much of a storyline it it still is it's a it's a storyline for that person at least i'm here's here's me interpreting your own song but um <laughs> but it's it's a very vivid memory for that person and that's just to me what life is it's like i i remember that i was playing with the vertical hold i remember that we made spaghetti and channel two was signing off the air and uh that's the that's the kind of writing that uh i don't i just sweeps me in because it's so vivid well no i appreciate you saying that it's funny though when you talk about your interpretation of it because uh, you know that song is a good example of people bringing their own very detailed uh elaborate interpretations to those lyrics which were not necessarily my intent as a writer. But mm. I would say that that's okay, because once I write a song, it doesn't belong to me anymore, although I'll re- keep the copyrights and uh, you know <laughs> the royalties. But in terms of what it means to people, uh, that, that's solely uh, you know, w- w- uh, their option, and, and they're entitled to interpret it however they want. I once got a, a very long, this is snail mail days, letter from a guy who uh, did an analysis of Ariel and pointed out what he claimed were all the sexual innuendos in the lyric. <laughs> now, some of them were intended there, but some of them were just not. I mean, he, you know, there's a line, you know, We went to Dairy Queen for something to eat. She had some onion rings. She had a pickle. She forgot to tell me that she didn't eat me. He claimed that pickles and onion rings were with these phallic references now <laughs> it never occurred to me but I, but I, he's not wrong uh that's a perfectly valid uh interpretation in fact someone recently wrote uh, an analysis uh, a very detailed analysis of ariel describing it as sort of the great gaps of popular music oh you know, wow evoking a particular place and time and an era and you know a striving for something like i say i, I welcome other people's interpretations because everyone else has a right to embrace a song and to, to ascribe their own meaning to it and when, like i say once the song is written i i don't control it uh after that and uh, so it's nice uh, that people will make it their own in that way so you talk about interpretation and, and collaboration and people kind of taking their own their own take on the song once it's out there. Um, there are some of your songs that there there's no need to interpret. There's no no take to be made. <laughs> it, very very political. Um, very um, sexual or <laughs> <laughs> some of them are very sexual. Um, did you so like for example the political song four more years did you get a lot of a lot of flashback from people about these these political songs putting out your your post uh, your feelings about these very controversial topics of course yes i do anytime you you know sort of delve into the political pond uh you can expect to get flamed and negative feedback and all kinds of trolls and that just goes with the territory but uh, you know, at the same time, if you say what you mean and you mean what you say, you know that's uh, Horton the elephant's theory. I meant when I said I said when I meant an elephant's faithful one hundred percent. Well, I think that applies to songwriting as well. Uh, so it's your song; you might as well say what you meant to say um, mm-hmm. at, with veracity and and earnestness. And uh, so, yeah, sometimes you pay. Uh, there are consequences for doing that. 
But more often than not, I think that level of sincerity is is something people will respond to. And you know, so far the feedback has been mostly positive. <laughs> but, <laughs> did you have a lot of say on the video that was made with that, or did you like did you auction that out to someone or? Oh well, I did that video myself in Flash. Um, wow! And uh, as uh, as well as uh, a terrible pickle. Um, and so they were both a lot of fun to do. Uh, you know, I'm a, sort of a, an animation hobbyist. Uh, I've always enjoyed it. My dad was an illustrator and animator. Um, oh, really? Yeah, he did uh, Bert and Harry from Peel's Beer and stuff like that. Uh, so I've always enjoyed drawing and illustrating, and you know, I've done some of my album covers and artwork in my albums. And all, you know, so I'm guessing that you did the album covers on the later end. I, I did the artwork for uh, Submarine Races. Uh, but I designed the album cover for Well Said the Rocking Chair, although the great illustrator Bob Grossman built the clay sculpture that mm-hmm. that was photographed and became the album cover. But I actually uh, did an illustration uh, which set the uh, the layout for what became that that, that you know 3D clay uh, sculpture uh, and uh, I, you know I was really delighted with the results cuz you know Bob Grossman is just a great illustrator and animator and so it was, it was a pleasure you know working with him back then I enjoy your a lot a lot of your album covers later on as that goes along the first the first couple I'll be honest I was I was kind of worried about you they had this ability in the 70s of taking a person and making them look really intense on the album cover well i'll explain i I, you're probably referring to the first album cover (laughs) the the first two i think are the biggest ones well the the first album cover uh on the back of it uh, or the inside sleeve there's there's a picture of me on a park bench sitting between two older guys and i'm reading a howard the duck comic book uh, I was a big Howard the Duck fan. Now, that was what I wanted the cover to be, but the record company uh, overruled me. So they put that on the back cover, and they, they booked a photo session like you know 10 o'clock in the morning somewhere on some radio promo tour, the last place in the world I wanted to be. And they sent me there in this pseudo sort of uh, French bistro uh, cafe uh, with a bottle of wine. And, yeah, I never drank wine. Anyway, it, it was a ridiculous, you know, pretty boy photo. Uh, and <laughs> let me tell you, I got a lot of flack for that. Um, but, uh, you know, that's how it goes. So, uh, yeah, no, I enjoy having more of a hand in, in, in all the artwork uh, since those early days. And, and the record company on, on record myself should have gone with the one that you wanted to do. Out of those two <laughs> options, your option was much better. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> So you were mentioning songs earlier, and I keep jumping in. Jeff, you can cut me off at any point. Um, I'm just really so excited to talk to you. So, <laughs> um, What was the first song that you ever wrote? First song I ever wrote, I was nine years old. It was a song called uh, Summertime. It went, I'd love to take a swim with you in the summertime. Oh, yeah, we'd swim so far in the ocean so blue in the summertime. <laughs> now, bear in mind that you know I bought my first guitar when I was nine. I... I uh, with a bag of quarters from a newspaper route. Uh, I learned four chords and started playing Beatles songs and, and Monkey's songs. And I did what you do starting out. It was a, I sort of imitated the musicians that I, I was a fan of and, and then started, uh, you know, writing my version of, uh, you know, 
I'm a believer and uh, yeah, 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 and all that you know stuff as a little nine-year-old innocent kid. Well, that's how the Beatles got started. Sure. So, uh, yeah, no, I started off pretty early on and just never stopped, just kept writing songs. And I got, you know, good positive feedback from folks and, you know, kids in the playground. And you know, any musician will tell you when you get that kind of positive feedback, it's a really strong incentive to keep going. So a lot of the things that you've said tonight have reminded me a lot of the same stuff that you that Stephen Page said when we interviewed him. Uh, a lot of similarities about the collaboration, uh, a lot of stuff about earlier th- influences for him. And, of course, you're an early influence for him, you know, for people that obviously don't know. In a year and a half, we're going to be covering McDonald's Girl. I am in love with the McDonald's girl. She has a smile of innocence, also tender and warm. I am in love with the McDonald's girl. She is an angel uniform. Can you talk a little bit about McDonald's Girl from Rumpel Romeo? Well, uh, McDonald's Girl is a song from my third album, Rumpel Romeo, and the whole album was filled with teenage love songs, all about you know adolescent romance and adolescent angst. And you know, I guess I was just in a romantic mood. And uh, <laughs> it's an album that is it's almost sequential in terms of how the songs evolve. And McDonald's Girl was just, you know, the, uh, about this teenage boy who was smitten with the girl behind the counter. Now, a- any musician that does gigs and, you know, drives home after the gig and stops at the local diner for a cheeseburger will inevitably fall in love with the waitress. <laughs> and so, you know, that's just sort of a common theme. Uh, and something like McDonald's Girl evolved out of, out of that common musician experience. And when I wrote it, I, I felt really good about the song. It sounded to me like a pure pop song. Uh, and, you know, we spoke before about different idioms and genres. And, you know, I, I love country and folk and rock and jazz and every idiom. But there's something about a pure pop song that I always had a strong affinity to. You know, Beatles, Beach Boys, and McDonald's Girl was in that realm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I always felt strongly about it, believed in it. But the, the problem uh, arose when... It was released as the first single off the first album in the United Kingdom, which had very strict rules with the BBC, which is government radio there, about anything that smacked of a commercial trade name. And so it was officially banned. Uh, Same thing happened to uh, uh, the Kinks when they released Lola. They had to change the lyric Coca-Cola to Cherry Cola. Which Um, is an easy change. (laughs) That was an easy change. I didn't really have that option in McDonald's Girl because it was so ubiquitous. It was, you know, the major part of the course. And mm-hmm. I really didn't have any interest in changing it. As a result, it was banned. And uh, it, it kind of led me to be dropped by my label and kind of put me in the record industry wilderness for a long time. But, you know, the song is sort of like the little engine that could. It, in spite of all the obstacles, it insisted on being heard. And so a few years later, someone informed me there was an article in Billboard magazine that this, you know, then unknown band out of Canada called Bare Naked Ladies did a cover version of it, which was one of their first airplay hits in Toronto on CFNY. And I thought that was cool. Then the next year, a band called The Blenders had a number one hit with it in Norway. A few years after that, the internet exploded. YouTube came about and McDonald's Girl went viral. 
Uh, and now there's you know hundreds of videos all over the world. People doing their own versions of McDonald's Girl or acting out to you know <laughs> blenders or bare naked ladies or my version of it. There have been movie covers, you know, like people singing it in movies. And, really? and finally, thirty years later, the, the McDonald's Corporation called me up to license it for a national TV and radio campaign. <laughs> they, they finally bought in. <laughs> they finally did. I said, "That's great, but what took you so long?" <laughs> But it was very satisfying because, like I said, you know, despite its, all its obstacles, uh, it was a pure pop song. I always believed in it, uh, and it insisted on being heard, and it was indeed. What movie? You said that McDowell's Girl. People have actually sung it in movies. Do you do you remember which movies they did that in? Well, there's one called I think it's called Tweak. It's an independent film that came out about 10, 15 years ago. You can find it probably on IMBD. Uh, and there's another that just licensed it that hasn't come out yet by uh, the director, Keith Beard. Uh, it's called Antarctica. And uh, they just licensed my recording of McDonald's Girl for a scene in the movie. Nice. Uh, Very cool. Like I say, it keeps popping up in unexpected ways. And it keeps proving itself to be what I always thought it was. Well, it's a, it's a really nice, sweet tale of, of early romance. Uh, yeah. well, Not romance, per se. But like. This like feeling of interest and in, and in, uh, of I don't want to say love, but like uh, of really finding this person that you're intrigued with. Um, well, like I say, he was smitten. Mm. So, what are your thoughts on BNL's version, the the unreleased track that never actually made it out there? Well, I cracked up when I first heard it. You know, it's at least for me. I I always get a real kick out of other people's interpretations of my songs. Um, and no matter how far out they might be, I was a little surprised the first time I heard them, you know, doing the Beastie Boys lyrics in the middle of it, in the in the break. But even that made me laugh because, yeah, I, I think it, that kind of perfectly lends itself to the to the state of mind of this guy who's got a serious crush on on the McDonald's girl. And so, yeah, that was seemed totally appropriate. Yeah, my only complaint was that they never recorded it on any of their major studio album releases. You know, <laughs> thanks guys. <laughs> uh, you know, who knows? For, for whatever reason, you know, the still the song still did you know, itself proud and and now I'm about to go on the road to finish the second half of a East Coast US tour with uh, Stephen Page and his trio and having a great time. It's a great band. Steven's just a terrific songwriter and performer, and uh, I'm having a great time. It's, it's so if stuff. you could ever cover a, uh, a Bare Naked Lady song, what would it be? Gee, uh, <laughs> you know, I love a lot, a lot of Steven's new stuff a lot. In, in uh. fact, as much as I enjoy his early work, I really think the, the newer stuff is more mature, has a more depth, is, and yeah, no, I really, I, it's, it's, it's really good stuff. But having said that, you know, I think this is true of all writers. Some of the early stuff you write can be sublime, whether you know what you're doing or not. And so a song like Laying in Bed, like Brian Wilson, that's a profound song. Uh, right. Beautiful melody and, and uh, deep sentiment. So, uh, yeah, that's one comes comes to mind in terms of doing a cover. Nice. So, so Dean, I'm, curi- I'm curious, um, um, you know, having got, uh, you know, you said you started in the 70s and you know, just kind of kept trucking along, doing what you do, and, and getting the notoriety for it. So how did that feel when you found out that you became the subject of a um, a British song, having had a kid at seven years old? <laughs> well, at first, I thought my friend who told me about it was 
joking. I, I didn't really believe him. It sounded too ridiculous. <laughs> Until I landed at Heathrow Airport and he handed me a copy of the, the best-selling EP that had the track on it, uh, The Bastard Son of Dean Friedman. I got a little bit nervous until I listened to the song, and it's so f- well written and so funny <laughs> that I, uh, you know, I couldn't hold anything against uh, Nigel Blackwell, who's the songwriter and lead singer for Half Man, Half Biscuit. But I did determine even then that I uh, one day I would exact my revenge, and indeed I did <laughs> uh, when I wrote my rebuttal, my repost to to their song, uh, which is called A Baker's Tale. Oh, Nigel Blackwell, And, a fantastic and, song. <laughs> it describes the uh, the true story behind the dubious origins of one Nigel Blackwell of Half Man Half Biscuit. So I think he got as you know as good as he gave, and uh, we've met a couple times. In fact, I even sang that song with them uh, at one of their gigs. They're really good guys, and you know, great band. Nigel's a great songwriter, and uh, so <laughs> it was a strange, surreal, but very fun experience. Now, maybe you can't say, but I'd love to see if you can, on the current tour that's going to be coming up, you start You start next week, is that right? Uh, this Friday, Friday, this November Friday. 1st. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll be releasing this on next Tuesday, so people, he's already out there, go out and buy the tickets, but can you tell us, are there any plans for the two of you to cover any songs together during any sets? Uh, well, we haven't so far, but I'm open to it. Uh, but having said it, you know the tight the sets that we both do are pretty tight. Uh, I did join them uh, for uh, a one-off when I was just doing a little quick guest spot in, in, at the Kit in Connecticut uh, this past year, uh, and that was great fun. You know, playing with uh, Ken Fox and Craig Northey and and Stephen. So it was, uh, you know. It's a great trio. I mean, they're really tight and intuitive musicians. Um, they're not just playing each of them in their own place. They're playing together as a unit, which is real cohesive and, you know, fine musicianship. And it just enhances the songs. No, I'm up for joining them uh, whenever the occasion arises. Can I ask which songs you guys you guys sang together when you did that? Oh, uh, they brought me up just to do the one tune, and they pl- uh, played Ariel. Mm. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. And uh, Wesley Stace was there too, so uh, he was playing and singing along. They they did all the background vocals. It was very cool. Now I'm going to ask you the hard question. You've probably been asked a million times, and it's the the question that parents always hate of who's your favorite child. But like, what is your favorite? What do you feel <laughs> is the best song that you've ever written? Well, you're right. It is like asking which is your favorite child. Basically, you love them all. Some are better behaved than others. Uh, <laughs> that's 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 really what I can tell you. Um, you know, they all go out into the world and do their own thing, and some of them surprise you, and some of them frustrate you. But they're a party somehow, remotely, um, and uh, you know, they they kind of reflect your worldview. So uh, sometimes that's shut down, <laughs> or people you know, look aghast at it. And but you take it all in, you accept it for what it is—good, the good, and the bad. 
Well, I, I think uh, I, I think listening to your music, if someone were to listen to your discography, I would think it sounds to me like you would appeal to a very wide uh, range of people. I mean, if you're listening to a playlist of your music that's scattered album to album, you're gonna get um, you're gonna listen to like say song for my mother. In the hollow of your arms, snuggled up all safe and warm, used to tell me tales of unicorns and kings. which is just a very profound and deep and, and uh, full of imagery. And then maybe the next song you're going to get is Death to the Neighbors. The kids are dirty, snot-nosed brats are spoiled through and through. I'm pretty sure they drown our cat. It's just the kind of thing they do. They're evil and obnoxious. They're rotten to the core. The three-year-old stuck his tongue at me. Buddy, this means war. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there you go. A comment. But, just, um, now, I, I absolutely love it. I love the diversity. We talked about how eclectic you are and, and the different styles and the different uh, lyrics. But uh, do you ever get uh, do you ever get comments from people that are like, uh, yeah, I just really love that album. But, oh, that song. <laughs> well, you know what? Um, what's funny is because of what you're describing, there are definitely people who only love one type of song that I write. Some people just only like the comedy songs, whereas there are some people that just only love the romantic ballads. Uh, and then there are some people <laughs> that you know only like the uh, the political stuff, where you know the more hard edge stuff. And you know, I like I say, I'm I'm happy if they like anything. Uh, and I, you know, I, I can't impose my own sensibilities on someone, <laughs> but I do appreciate folks who kind of mutually appreciate the the range of what I do. Yeah, see the genius of, of all of it. Like, yes, this is a brilliant song, absolutely funny, hilarious, uh, lyrically dark, and this is a beautiful song because you just absolutely nail the uh, the romantic side of things. Like, just being able to see that, you know, you're presenting life as a whole is is the way I kind of see it. I mean, you're just covering so many bases. Um, when you do a live show, do you do you mix it up pretty much? Then you get a little bit of everything in there. Uh, I try to, um, absolutely, and you know that's the challenge of doing a live song, but at the same time. You know, the fact that I, you know, have a lot of stuff that's just plain funny, it sort of leavens the set uh, so that I can mix it up and kind of alternate uh, some of the, you know, the lighter stuff with the more serious, heavy stuff. Because I don't want people, you know, walking out of the gig in tears. Um, but, but it's nice <laughs> yeah. when people come up and say, you know what, I love the show. It was hilarious and it also made me cry. You know, as long as they get the full range of those experiences and emotions, then... I've done my job. Nice. And I can see how you had a lot of influence on Stephen Page, young Stephen Page, um, and probably the other Bare Naked Ladies too, but I haven't talked with them. I don't know know for sure. But definitely young Stephen Page was influenced by how, how much you – like a lot of your similarities in there with all the different varieties and, and how he likes to make people cry but then also make them them laugh and, and tell a serious song. Now, I know Stephen did backups for uh, songs for grown-ups. Do you remember which songs he was doing the backup vocals on that one for? Uh, well, he definitely sang background vocals on Hobnobbin. And I'm a Hobnobbin. Hobnobbin. Making the scene with Wolverine. And I'm a Hobnobbin. Hobnobbin. Talking trash with the flats. I'm Hobnobbin. Hobnobbin. Getting in the swing with the thing. I'm Hobnobbin with Batman and Robin. Uh, mm. Which is a song all about my favorite superheroes. I love Hobnobbin. That, that is an amazing song, by the way. 
Thank you. And so that's Stephen singing background vocals on it, hobnobbing with Batman and Robin. And uh, he also sang background vocals on uh, Ayamba Yahoo. Ayamba In this world, there's nothing new. And maybe one or two more, but honestly, I can't remember that looking at there are like 30 tracks on that album, the double yeah. CD, or 28 tracks, yeah, 14 on each side. You know, he, he, he was down for the, for the afternoon in the studio, and it was very gracious of him to agree to do that. No, I appreciate that he did. How did that come about? Uh, well, I, as I say, learned that Bare Naked Ladies had done their cover of McDonald's Girl. Uh, and I just reached out to him. I said, you know, you know, I really got a kick out of your cover. And, you know, thanks for spreading the music. And by the way, I'm in the studio doing a new album. And if you're in New York, anytime in the next month, uh, I'd love to have you, you know, stop by and lend your vocals to some of these background tracks. And uh, he didn't have to respond, but he very graciously did so. And he, he came up to... Peekskill, New York. A bunch of us got on mic and 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 sang uh, hobnobbing with Batman and Robin, <laughs> and uh, so it was a lot of fun and it was nice of him to do that. Hmm. So, kind of talking and, and sticking to the grown-up theme, um, I want to talk a little bit about the Girls in the Attic. <laughs> it is a very different album. It takes a left turn and goes in a different direction than things I'd heard on the other albums. Um, did you ever, had you ever heard Corky and the Jukes Pigs before this album? Um, no, I can't say that I have. <laughs> I think it's funny because like your, your song, Just the Right Size. Thank God my penis is just the right size. If it got any bigger, it'd burst my Levi's. It used to be longer till I got circumcised. Just the right size reminds me a lot of, and it's not definitely not a pull from or anything like that. So no, no, Corky and them don't don't go and try to sue Dean because like that's that's not gonna work. Uh, but it reminds me a lot of the church that they wrote. The song the church, um, which I also love. So that's a huge compliment. Um, I'll have to take a listen to it. But I, I could not stop laughing listening to that song. Well, you know what? Um, back in 2001, I uh, performed for the first time at uh, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival uh, in Scotland, uh, which is, as far as I understand, the, the largest and the oldest arts festival in the world. Uh, oh. So for, th- for three weeks in Edinburgh, in Scotland, about 30,000 performers of every ilk uh, – Actors, musicians, dancers, uh, every kind of artist you can imagine descends on the city and they do 3,000 shows over those three weeks in 300 different venues. So it's like this huge outdoor arts festival. It's really an awesome experience. Now, when I started doing it in 2001, uh, there was not a lot of music, uh, but mostly there were uh, theater groups and comedians. In fact, most of the top British comedians came out of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. So I had a great time seeing some of these really brilliant comedians, folks like Booth Begrafo, Jenny Godley. Um, and I was really taken with the kind of cutting edge, uh, pushing the envelope uh, writing that they did. 
Now, I've always written comedy songs. There's always one or two kind of humorous tracks on my albums from when I started out. Um, But I was very inspired by these great comedians at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And so I went home and I thought, well, you know what? I I, I could do that. I'm going to write a bunch of comedy songs. And and that uh, turned into Squirrels in the Attic, which is – you know, sort of my way of saying, you know, there's something noisy going up there uh, in your head, <laughs> something mischievous happening that you're not too aware of it. It's kind of squirrely sounds going on. And so it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I got to be silly and perverse at the same time. And so uh, songs like I Miss Monica, dedicated to Washington's <laughs> favorite mm-hmm. intern. I, I never really liked you all that much. Doink, doink, it's just a little joint. You mentioned death to the neighbors and uh, four more <laughs> years and uh, uh, just the right size, of course. Uh, so it was uh, something that I had a lot of fun doing and as I think evoked a lot of laughter uh, and the folks that have listened to it. People probably know you more for your music than anything else, but you've also written books uh, about synthesizers. Uh, but more interesting to me, you are now the president and creative director of In Video Games. Is that correct? Uh, well, in 1989, I uh, I designed what became the very first uh, virtual reality video game for uh, television, a game called Eat a Bug, which was aired on Nickelodeon's Total Panic. Uh, and bear in mind, this was two decades before Microsoft Connect ever came out. Uh, or the Wii, and uh, you know that kind of camera-based uh, VR interface that that you know we are now so familiar with. That uh, they sold 100 million units or 10 million units to whatever. Um, but back in 1989, it was very cutting-edge technology, um, and uh, you know it cost a lot of money to put a system together. Uh, I saw a developer uh, demonstration at a trade show, uh, and was really taken with it. And uh, I, I did a demo, and and we managed to license it to Nickelodeon. And then the next year, I was hired to program a dozen games for uh, a show called Nick Arcade on Nickelodeon. And that led to designing these uh, camera-based VR games for leading children's museums and theme parks all over the world. Uh, and it was great fun, <clears throat> and uh, you know, millions of kids enjoyed it. Not, not just kids, adults too. Is it? You know, science museums everywhere. Uh, it was just a little bit ahead of its time. As I say, it was two decades before uh, it became a consumer product. You know, it paid my bills for a while uh, through the 90s. Uh, it was a great experience, and uh, I'm proud of the work that I did. Well, that's really cool. Like, you, you, you're artistic in so many different ways and, and connected into all these different things. That's really neat. Just to me, there were, you know, the same way a guitar and a piano and a ukulele and a harmonica or a banjo or just different instruments, uh, different colors in a musical palette. Um, I, I view, uh, you know, the video game software and, 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 you know, video and Photoshop illustration software in that same way. They're just different colors and audiovisual palette. Uh, and for me, it's just something that I get to play with the same way I play with, you know, notes and words. The creative process is, is not really different at all it's the same for me this could be kind of a out of place question but um and just listening through your uh body of work do you borrow a lot from you know when we talked about how you're uh, you're very eclectic and how some of the music can be just outlandish and funny and and some of it's just serious and profound does some of the writing come directly from life like i just couldn't help but notice and i tend to read into things that's my uh that's my uh, uh flaw 
But like uh, Larry, for example, is mentioned in two songs and Hey Larry and, and Jennifer's Baby. And I just couldn't help draw connections there. Are some of these real life characters or based on real life? Well, I would say almost all of it is based on real life. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I do uh, ascribe to the philosophy that it pays to write about what you know. But then I also use my poetic license to great effect, which is a nice way of saying I, I get to lie and make things up. <laughs> so, you know, I'll, I'll draw from the world around me and my life and my friends' lives and, uh, you know, even stuff you read in the paper. Uh, but then I get to, you know, shape it in a ways that, that, that works for me in, in terms of crafting a song. Now, as far as Larry, <laughs> that's actually a question I get a lot. Actually, there are three Larrys. There was Larry Z, Larry F. And another Larry altogether, who uh, was in mentioned in, in Jennifer's Baby. So, hey, Larry, uh, uh, I guess in my mind, I was thinking of, uh, of the first two Larrys I referenced. At the end of the day, <laughs> it's a symbolic Larry. Um, but those experiences, as I say, are drawn from real life, but tweaked just a little bit. Uh, and hopefully uh, they are familiar to the listener. Can we expect another album coming out soon? Well, not soon, but I do hope to go back into the studio in 2020. You know, the challenge is to find enough time and resources to be able to concentrate and focus my energies and attention uh, on the writing and the album making process, which, you know, for me takes, you know, a good four months. Mm. Or more sometimes. And so because I do a certain amount of touring every year uh, and, um, you know, just setting up those tours takes a a good part of the rest of the year. Uh, I have to be, I have to very strategically figure out, uh, allocate time to do just that. And uh, also, uh, you know, I'm in the habit of crowdfunding my albums and that's something uh, I have planning on doing, uh, you know, over the next couple of months. Where yeah, do you do that for quite a few albums? Yeah, where do you uh, do your crowdfunding? Well, uh, I actually crowdfunded my first album in 2001, and, and this was just a few months after Marillion, who are known as the first band to crowdfund their right, work. Right. Uh, at first, I just did it through my own website. Uh, and uh, uh, we're talking 2001. This was six years before Kickstarter or Indiegogo ever existed. But since they've come about, I've, I've either used my own forums on my own website. Um, I've done some things on Indiegogo. Yeah, I haven't decided yet uh, whether to do it myself or, or, or through one of the the, the crowdfunding sites. Um, you know, it's kind of like six of one half and a dozen of the other. Um, Does that but, provide uh, you freedom from having to worry about the oversight of recording, stu- like the recording companies and things like that? It does. Uh, you know, uh, there's pros and cons, you know, because in the old days, you always had some record company executive looking over your shoulder. You know, what are you doing? What's going to be? What's going to sound like? <laughs> Although when you crowdfund an album, now I, I, you know, I picture like, you know, hundreds of people, <laughs> thousands looking over my shoulder. Okay, now what's happening? What are you doing now? <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a different kind of oversight, uh, but one that's a little more, you know, collaborative and uh, uh, sympathetic. So, uh, yeah, no, I appreciate that I've been able to, crowdfund my albums and to launch my touring purely by virtue of that listening audience through my website and mailing list. The reason I asked that question is because I crowdfunded my first album this year and um, I'm happy to say I did everything completely wrong. Um, 
in doing that. And it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, it can be a scary process. Is there any advice sure. you can give for someone that's uh, setting out to crowdfund and, and uh, you know, how to approach that? It is a challenge. And I think the biggest challenge is overcoming the self-consciousness of going around asking folks to give you money uh-huh. yeah. to, to make a piece of art. You know, when I first wrote my crowdfunding letter, I was afraid everyone would write back and say, oh, Dean, why don't you get a proper job? Uh, and some people actually did that. They say, hey, I work for a living. Why don't you work for a living? But enough people were supportive of those efforts. I will say this, that even though you know, my last, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four albums have been crowdfunded. The crowdfunding alone never really paid for uh, all the production or for my right. bills during the production process. Mm-hmm. So it was always supplemented, you know, through my own efforts uh, and on rare occasions uh, through, you know, some windfall like the McDonald's Girl commercial or, you know, a benevolent sponsor. But, you know, uh, you know, there have always been patrons of the arts uh, that made, right. you know, all the legendary artists possible. It can be difficult to, to feel like you're entitled to ask for that help. But sometimes uh, if you're committed to making an album and to creating your work as an artist, then, you know, you summon up the courage to, to do just that. <laughs> and there'll always be someone who'll be critical of it. Uh, at least in my experience, at the end of the day, it, it was worth that self-consciousness and some of the embarrassment to wind up actually being able to deliver something that I think has uh, has entertained and meant a lot to a lot of people. You, we've talked about a lot of your songs tonight. Not all of them, because you have a very long discography. <laughs> um, is it okay if we use little snippets of those songs to kind of entice people to go out and, and listen to more of your music? Please do. <laughs> and and with that being said are there are there songs that we haven't mentioned tonight that you would definitely want me to make sure that we paste some like little snippets of in here to to entice because we haven't covered that genre we haven't covered that kind of feel um i know when i'm thinking about it like time flies i put on a jetpack i said honey i'll be right back i'm just going to the store then i flew out the door I soar through the air, circle around the square, practice my freestyle. Then I hover to one time. Time flies is a very Kevin kind of feel. You know, Kevin from Bare Naked Ladies, we have that kind of feel on that song. Your pretty face is very jazzy but beautiful. Um, woman, of woman, of mine, woman of Mine is an absolutely gorgeous song. <laughs> oh, Woman of Mine, you took the mighty fine time to tell me that you're on your way. Now that I'm out of my mind, tell me how the hell I'm ever gonna make it to another day. Well, baby, there's just no way. Thank you. Are there any that you're thinking of that you're like, oh, yeah, you didn't touch on that. And I, that's another genre that I hit that, that people might be interested in hearing. Well, uh, I guess what comes to mind is uh, that I've written a whole bunch of silly uh, kid songs. I'm going to send you a couple of links that uh, you'll be able to explore. 
at your leisure. I'm very um, excited now. Let's see here. Uh, well, uh, we're asking you to pick your kids again. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you are. Well, well, these are literally kids' <laughs> songs, so that's. <laughs> here we go. Well, I sent you two links. Uh, right, the second one is a, a collection of uh, of kid songs uh, that I've sold for years. It started. It was really just a demo that people kept, you know, demanding that I make copies and and, and sell. And so, um, but it's got a lot of really silly songs that a whole generation of kids have grown up listening to uh, with apparently no ill effects. Um, <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, a lot of them I, t- I turned into uh, – w- one of them in particular is called Smelly Feet. Oh, he's quite a guy, but I can't lie. No, you can smell him from across the street with those smelly feet. Oh, smelly feet. And uh, I turned it into a kid's musical. Um, in fact, let me get that link for you if I can find it. So, yeah, I've got a whole – extensive catalog of children's songs which i'm real proud of and and kids love them and the musicals i've written are really silly uh this uh, musical smelly feet is a a a children's musical that really stinks and (laughs) (laughs) uh but i also wrote for my jewish landsman collection of silly hebrew school songs um that's titled a million matzo balls the title track of, of that collection is uh song called A Million Matzo Balls, and it tells the almost true story of how my mom got a little over-enthusiastic in the kitchen one day and made a million matzo balls. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it's sort of my version of on top of all spaghetti, mm-hmm. all covered with sauce. Yeah. Uh, uh, but instead of meatballs going, flying all over the place, there's a, there's a million matzo balls. Um, and you'll find in one of the links that I sent you that, uh, curiously enough, it's another one of the film covers that I had. Uh, a film sync. There's a song, a, a, a movie called Lemon, that stars an uh, indie feature that came out a couple years ago, starring Rhea Perlman from Cheers, the actress from Cheers. They used my song A Million Matzo Balls. I have to warn your listeners up front: if you ever, you know, check out this movie Lemon, it's one of the most depressing movies of all time, except for about this two-minute segment where the whole family. This very dysfunctional family sings my song a million matzo balls, um, which <laughs> every review from the Wall Street Journal to the L.A. Times uh, singled out as the highlight of the film. It's it's described as uh, you know a classic uh, moment in uh, Jewish film uh, cinema history, and uh, wow. so I would invite you to choose at least one track from the kids' material. Squiggles, zigzag circles, lines and dots. They're fun to draw and you can use them lots and lots. Every letter has them in different spots. Squiggles, zigzag circles, lines and dots. Because it's pretty funny stuff. And uh, uh, it, it sort of it, it, it complements all the grown-up stuff that I do. Uh, you know, when I write a grown-up song, I'm, I'm always a little conscious of practicing some measure of restraint when it comes to uh, excessive punning and alliteration but when i do a, a kid's song I, I i feel no compunctions and, and <laughs> i feel no uh you know necessity to exercise any restraint uh, that's why i enjoy them and that's I about just, it guys <laughs> you have been an amazing guest thank you so much for joining us dean yes thanks thanks dean thanks for I, I highly encourage everyone deanfriedman.com you can go out you can buy his albums you can also download 
any of the music as well. Um, I recommend going there because I don't know how much of that you get from there versus how much you get on iTunes. So go right directly to his site and get it from there because I'm guessing that you get a better percentage from there. I do indeed. Um, uh, and if you're listening to this on Tuesday night, then just to let your listeners know, I'm still going to be out on the road with Stephen Page and his trio. Um, and uh, looking forward to gigs in Philadelphia at City Winery in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, in Mamaroneck, uh, New York uh, on the 9th, and Roslyn, Long Island on the 10th. Uh, anyway, so uh, just check uh, my website or the Stephen Page website for those tour dates and hope to see you folks out on the road. Yeah, and those seats are, are selling quickly, so go out and get them. They are like Stephen Page's shows are really selling out. That you can't wait till last minute. You can't show up the night that it goes up. Uh, yeah, some of the New York dates are already sold out. But uh, uh, yeah, check them out online and uh, come join us. You'll have a great time. Yeah, I just got excited because I checked that you're going to be at Music Fest in Bethlehem. Um, which is literally like an hour and a half from me, so that's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, come say hi. I hope to see you there. Will do. So thank you very much. You're welcome on the show anytime that you want to come on and talk Bare Naked Ladies or any of the songs, but you've been an amazing guest, and thank you for all of your time. You spent more than a considerable amount of time talking with us <laughs> and answering our questions. It was a pleasure, guys. You take care, and I'll catch you down the line. You too, thank yep. you. Have a, have a good night, Dean. You too. Thanks, that was fun. Don't forget, no regrets. Except maybe one. It is my pleasure to introduce Dan Friedman. Dean, Hold Dan, thank you. Yeah, Dean, sorry. I did it again. I'm going to stop and I'll, I'll let you do it again. And no, no worries, because that happens. All week long, I have been Especially typing Dan every time dyslexic. I type. No worries. So, this is why we do. This is why we don't do it live, Dean. That's, that's right. <laughs> so here you go. Take two. All right.
It is my pleasure to introduce Dan Friedman. Dean, Dan, thank you. Dean, I did it again. I'm going to stop and fix myself. (laughs) All week long, I have been typing Dan every time I type. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) All right. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.